Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions of titles to choose from in a tremendous variety of literary genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device on planet Earth, whether it's an iPhone or a Kindle, or perhaps you have an Android. The point is that you have options. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get When Women Were Birds, 54 Variations on Voice, the new book by today's guest, Terry Tempest Williams. And better yet, the audiobook is narrated by Terry herself. And hey, just about any book at Audible can be yours free of charge with this deal. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few nickels. That is enjoyable. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is uploaded and then downloaded. This is recorded on a MacBook. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. I'm a little under the weather. Can you hear it in my voice? Uh, But it is currently 80 degrees and sunny outside. It's gorgeous. It is February. I'm feeling uh, victorious. I feel like I have won something. The air smells like jasmine, and police helicopters are buzzing across a bright blue sky. Um, what is happening? Well, uh, I have some things on my mind. I have some things that I would like to get off my chest, which means that uh, I have things on both my mind and my chest. And I think they're all related, these things, or somewhat related, thematically related. And uh, I'll start by saying that much of this has to do with media consumption. That is what I have deduced. I've been noticing lately, more so than normal, how affected I am by what I read on my screen and uh, what I see on my screen 
and what I listen to, uh, just like my, my total media diet. And, uh, so just this morning, for example, I'm reading the paper and, uh, you know, I actually get an old fashioned newspaper delivered to my house. I started that uh, a while back in an effort to sort of rejigger my media diet. I read the paper in the morning, uh, because I like to read the paper. I like to read the news and I like to have at least a general idea of what's going on. And, uh, then from that point uh, forward, I try to limit myself from reading too much news online all day long, which gets repetitive and can be a waste of time, not to mention confusing and toxic. So I'm reading the paper uh, this morning, and there's a story in the business section about the quote-unquote uh, economic recovery of the past few years, uh, because things have bounced back a bit. You know, the stock market, for example, is hitting you know new all-time highs. I don't understand it. I don't know what that means, but uh, the numbers are there. The numbers are moving upwards. And uh, I'm reading the business section so I can try to understand it better because this is an area in which I am uh, admittedly deficient. And uh, this article is talking about income levels and how income levels during the recovery uh, have been flat for 99% of the population. Like 99% of the population, on average, has experienced static income. No change uh, adjusted for inflation. But for the 1%, the fortunate 1% income rates have actually shot up by 11 points, 11 percentage points upwards. And uh, so I read this and I react immediately, viscerally, angrily, <laughs> hostily, internally. Like there were no outward demonstrations of anger. There was no yelling. There were no hand gestures. But internally, I was like, you fuckers, you motherfuckers, and I started thinking about bankers and men in suits and skyscrapers and politicians and uh, oil men and coal refineries and climate science deniers and factory farms. All of this stuff starts flashing through my brain. And uh, then I thought about uh, the State of the Union address that happened this past Tuesday where uh, the president uh, stood there and suggested that we might, we might raise the minimum wage in America to uh, nine fifty an hour, and I remember earlier this week reading like reactions. You know, in the aftermath of the State of the Union, I remember reading reactions to that particular suggestion. And there were many people who were in support of it, obviously, and there were many opponents uh, of this concept who were saying uh, basically that this is impossible. That raising the minimum wage to just nine fifty an hour would somehow be uh, untenable. It would create an untenable situation. It would destroy businesses. It would hamstring the job creators, the job creators, and so on and on, you know, so on and so forth. And, you know, I'm not an economist. You know, I'm not a business tycoon. But this smells like complete horseshit to me. Because, you know, the people at the top, these executives, you read about them constantly. You hear about them on the news. There is no end to how much money these people can make. There's no end. Like the top 1%, their wages go up by 11 points. But the people at the bottom, you know, whatever. They're fine with 7.25 an hour. But there, you know, there's no negative effects to be found in the massive bonuses and the golden parachutes and the piles of stock options that are handed out on a consistent basis to the top 1% regardless of how they might have behaved. So, 
you know, I don't mean to go off on some sort of like political rant. I'm just saying that this was an experience that I had, uh, an experience that was rooted in my media diet. And so then another thing that happened, like somewhat related, is that I was reading a profile of uh, Ezra Klein in The New Republic. Do you guys know who Ezra Klein is? He is a uh, wonk, a political wonk, (laughs) a political pundit, and a policy analyst for The Washington Post. He has a blog at The Washington Post, uh, which is very popular, very influential. It is called The Wonk Blog, and it gets like millions of visitors a month. You know, Ezra has a big brain, and he's only 28. And as far as I can tell, he's like the king or the prince. He's like the crown prince of the Washington media elite. He's a political darling, a journalistic darling, a member of the Beltway media elite. And his ascent uh, has been relatively meteoric, unusually rapid. And he, like, he even has the presidents here. I, from what I can tell, the president reads him. Maybe he talks to him. Uh, you know, Ezra goes to uh, big parties in Washington, D.C. He's on the television. He has a pretty wife. They are a power couple. Uh, he's in control of his situation, okay? And uh, that's great. I like Ezra Klein. I like reading him. He seems nice. Uh, I read him a lot. Uh, I, fi- I found him especially helpful, for example, during the big healthcare debate of a couple of years back, uh, because he seemed to actually understand what he was talking about. He seemed to have actually read and studied the policy papers. Uh, he was fluent and he spoke clearly and without stuttering. So, you know, maybe he fooled me, but he seemed to know what he was doing. And so, uh, anyway, I'm reading this profile of him in the New Republic with great interest because I'm trying to find out how this happened. I'm curious. Like, how did this random. A political blogger managed to separate himself and emerge from the field as a, a veritable media superstar. And it was fascinating. Like I was going along following the story. Uh, I felt happy for Ezra. I felt impressed by his discipline and his intellect, uh, the dexterity of his uh, nimble mind. And then I get to the following passage and uh, suddenly I feel terrified internally. I freeze Uh, I begin to perspire ever so slightly. Uh, I feel for a moment somewhat nauseous uh, in my chair. So here's the passage. Uh, The journalist who wrote the piece, her name is Julia Ioff. Ioffi? Ioff? I don't know how to pronounce it. But Julia is quoting one of her sources. And uh, this source, who prefers to go unnamed, it should be noted, is talking about Ezra. And so here's the actual passage in question. Quote, Ezra is an incredible operator, says one prominent Washington editor. He is always looking upward at things. You only have to watch him work a party. He moves right to the most important people there. End quote. So, pretty innocuous on some levels. This is Washington, D.C. This is power. This is a journalist. He's a pundit. You know, his job is to cover these people, right? I mean, uh, but when I read... Uh, you know, when I read this, I became uh, terrified. I, I personalized it, which is something that I often will do. I think it's kind of a human tendency. I started thinking to myself, oh, Jesus, this is what you have to do. You have to go to these parties. You have to immediately begin grading the people in attendance according to how valuable they are to the achievement of your particular ambitions. And so I then began uh, to imagine as recline as a... <laughs> 
as a Terminator, uh, a T-1000, I believe, from the Terminator movies. And uh, I, I should apologize to Ezra here because, like I said, I'm a fan, basically. I, I read him. I listen to him. I'm not trying to be overly harsh here or do any kind of grim character assassination because I don't know the guy. Uh, this is more about me than it is about him. He seems like a decent fellow. Uh, and so, of course, uh, this was just one profile uh, by one journalist, too. But uh, Ezra, if you've ever seen him on television, he does seem hyper-controlled. You can feel it. You can feel the discipline. You can sense the drive and the ambition. Uh, and his mastery of policy, his ability to speak in complete paragraphs without getting sidetracked or saying, um, uh, and so on, it's almost computer-like. It is almost droid-like. <laughs> in its effect. So I think that that's where the Terminator metaphor comes in. And uh, you know how in the movies, when the Terminator enters a room and suddenly you're getting Terminator POV, it's like a computer vision and the, the screen goes uh, like red or, or is it green? And the Terminator is able to assess uh, like room temperature and he has uh, like facial recognition technology and laser targeting and so on. Well, this, as I sat there reading this profile, was what I imagined Ezra doing. I imagined him at some sort of high-octane Washington cocktail party, and he walks in with his wife, uh, and they both look attractive and powerful, and suddenly Ezra has Terminator vision, and he starts assessing the various people in the room with this Terminator vision. And then I started thinking about my own life and uh, about uh, success and about publishing, and just life in general. And I became afraid and a little nauseous, and I said to myself quietly in the privacy of my own mind, oh my God, like this is how it works. This is it. You have to operate. You have to be a world-class operator. You have to know how to work a room. You walk into a room, and, and you know, instead of just being, uh, being there, instead of just being like, hey, how's it going, and having a drink and eating some crudite, you are instead scanning faces and thinking of names and measuring people's value against the weight of your own ambition. And it depresses me, <laughs> is what I'm saying. I don't want to do that. I don't want to live like that. I won't do that. But to what effect in my own life? Because if I'm being honest, I have felt that before. I'm not trying to remove myself or elevate myself from the realm of ambition or from the realm of... Uh, any kind of social hierarchy, you know, uh, when I'm in the presence of someone who's quote unquote powerful, uh, I felt that in some, you know, to some degree before I live in Los Angeles, I'm a writer. Uh, I have stood in a room next to Steven Spielberg before true story. I was at a movie screening. Uh, I don't know how I got there, but I was at a movie screening. I was in the lobby and there he was. And I do remember having like uh, a flash of like hunger <laughs> Or something happened in my brain where I looked at this guy who is small in stature and seems very nice. And I looked at him and I think I might have thought quickly, like, this man could change my life. <laughs> he could bless me. He could knight me. He could lift me up into, into the light, <laughs> into a soft, glowing, warm, golden light. You know? But I didn't act on it. It's not like I said anything. I would never do that. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to operate. 
So do you have to be an operator? I think that's what that's what was gnawing at me. That was my problem. So one more story, and I know I'm rambling here, but I need to say this because it all feels of a piece. Uh, so the third part of my story involves a juice shop, a juicery, a place that sells juice. And this was just the other day, uh, like day before yesterday. I'm on my way to a coffee shop to do some writing, and I stop off at this uh, juicery to uh, get some juice, to acquire juice. And uh, I get these juice, like smoothie, like shake things, because I'm convinced that they're going to make me live uh, to be 110. So you go into this place. It's been around since like the 1970s, uh, and it's run by uh, like authentic Los Angeles hippies. Uh, like the real deal. And it's very small. It's very small. There's only room for like three customers in this place. And oftentimes a line will form out the door onto the sidewalk. So, you know, you, you sort of, you have to wait your turn. And then when you go in, there's a guy uh, running the cash register and making uh, juice uh, smoothies and wheatgrass and so on. And it's you and maybe two other people tops inside of this place waiting in line. So there I am. And it's me and two other women. And one of the women is in workout clothes. Like she's in uh, her Lululemon post-yoga Los Angeles workout gear. And uh, then there's a woman who I believe was of Middle Eastern descent. And she was shockingly beautiful uh, in the way that people often are here in Los Angeles. She looked like a model or, or an actress. Beautiful skin, beautiful hair. Uh, these big full lips, beautiful, like feline eyes. And she was dressed to the nines. She was headed somewhere important. And she appeared to be very wealthy and successful, uh, even regal. Like that's what it looked like. I found myself wondering if she was uh, like the member of uh, a royal family from some country, like the, uh, <laughs> the wife of a sultan or something. So you know, she's ordering and she seems to be having trouble figuring out what she wants. And then she finally figures it out. And, uh, you know, the guy behind the counter makes her a couple of like juice related smoothies. And then she goes to pay. And because this is like, you know, an old school hippie operation, they don't accept credit cards. It's cash only. That's it. And uh, so this woman goes to pay and it's like $18. That's the total 18 bucks. And I see her standing there fumbling with her wallet. And then she says, uh, oh, no, I didn't realize you don't take credit cards. And she's counting the cash in her, in, her, in, her, you know, in her wallet. And I'm watching this. And it becomes clear that she's like a couple of dollars short. Just like two bucks. So immediately I'm like, I got it. Don't worry. It's two dollars. Get your juice. I'll pay, for, you know, I'll pay the difference. Uh, and the woman in, workout, in, in her workout gear standing next to me, she does the same thing. And so then the two of us sort of consult with one another and we uh, mutually agree to each put forward $1 uh, to help this woman get her juice. And at first she resists, uh, but then we insist and we go back and forth. Uh, and eventually she accepts our offer graciously. Uh, she says, thank you. And I remember saying like, just to try to lighten the moment or, or something, I remember saying something like, you know, hey, don't worry. You know, this is my good deed for the day. Uh, now I can be uh, a you know jerk for the rest of the day and not have to worry about it or something like that. And there was a light chuckle in the room, a polite, light chuckle rippled through the room. 
And so uh, the woman takes her juice and she says, thank you once again. And she walks out and I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good about myself. I just did a nice thing. I helped this woman out. Uh, I stepped forward in her, in her time of need. But uh, then, like not even five seconds later, as soon as this uh, beautiful woman is gone out of the store and, you know, disappears around the corner, uh, the guy behind the counter turns dark all of a sudden. He's shaking his head. He looks uh, angry. And he says something to the effect of, that crazy woman is in here two or three times a week, and she does that every time. And so, of course, I'm like, what? You know, and the, the woman in her workout gear is, is equally confused. Uh, and the guy is like, yeah, she's in here two or three times a week, and she always claims to not have enough cash, and then she borrows from people in line. She's an actress. She's crazy. You just got taken. This is what she does. And I'm <laughs> I'm completely incredulous. I'm like, this, her? Like, she looked like a princess. And he's like, I know, it's a scam. And, uh, you know, I say, oh, my God. And the woman in workout gear is like, I can't believe it. And we all stand there talking about this for a moment. And then, the, you know, the woman gets her juice and I get my juice. And I walk outside into the bright desert sunlight. So uh, what's my point? Uh, I don't know. I think it has something to do with humanity and power and money and greed and strangeness the strangeness of people, the strangeness of ambition, uh, systems of thought, how things work, how the world works, how to behave in the world. You know, it's like, what, what should I do? How should I operate? You know, it's confusing, and uh, this might be the longest monologue I've ever done. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest today is Terry Tempest Williams. It is a great honor to have her here on the program. Uh, I'm excited to get to share this conversation with you. It's a really good one. Terry is uh, obviously an author. She's written several books, including Refuge, and Unnatural History of Family and Place, which is widely regarded as a classic. She's received multiple awards for her writing. She's a conservationist. She's an activist. She's a teacher. She is a literary artist in the tradition of people like Henry David Thoreau uh, and Walt Whitman and Rachel Carson and so on. Her latest book is called When Women Were Birds, 54 Variations on Voice. 
It was published in hardcover by FSG last April, and the paperback edition is due out on February 26th, 2013 from Picador. So without any further ado, this here is my conversation with Terry Tempest Williams, the author of When Women Were Birds. I am sitting in the basement of my father's home on the east bench of Salt Lake City. Um, In the month of January, I can tell you that we've had 58 inches of snow. And my father has been toiling all winter, um, what should I say, removing the snow, um, shoveling the driveway, um, every single one of those inches, and he turns 80 this year. So I tell you that because as a Westerner, um, that says much about where I come from. Um, I know in the East, and in New York City, for example, you know, you even get a threatening um, of a winter storm and the city shuts down. Uh, I'm not talking about Hurricane Sandy, but um, I'm home, and I'm in Salt Lake City, and it's a beautiful, clear day. And uh, that's also unusual because I can tell you that the past week, the inversion here in Salt Lake City has been reminiscent of Beijing. What do you mean? Like the air pollution? Terrible. Really bad. So when you see Ai Weiwei with his gas mask on, um, I'm teaching at the University of Utah in the Environmental Humanities Graduate Program. Um, Our students are doing Ai Weiwei approaches to... um, air quality, uh, donning gas masks. So well, I that's a- where we are politically. I can appreciate gas masks. Like the logo for this podcast is me with a gas mask on. And, um, <laughs> I but, saw that. But, you know, the, I, I, sh- I should add, though, because it, it, it's not necessarily as, uh, as related as it might seem. What happened was I, I needed a logo and I hired, you know, actually, this is good podcast mythology. I don't think I've ever revealed this to anyone. So uh, I hired a guy to draw me. Because really? I can't draw myself. I needed a logo. So I was like, well, it's me on the show. So I, I didn't know what to do. So he draws me and I look at the drawing and I'm like, I look terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was, I had him draw a gas mask over my face just as a... Are you serious? Yeah. And, and it sort of works. You know, I kind of like it in a, in a weird way. But that's why it happened. It was just because the expression on my face, I just looked really upset or something it was it was a very you know bleak expression so i decided to put a gas mask on which i think is bleak in its own right but maybe adds like a little bit of humor i love that well i um definitely felt a, a kindred spirit when i saw that on your website <laughs> right yeah, like, thank I can, you i can relate to this guy exactly so i want to talk to you i mean you mentioned obviously where you are and you you know you have such a strong sense of place and such a grounding uh, in where you're from. And, you know, I'm, um, uh, you know, I kind of had this peripatetic childhood. We moved around a lot. I now live in Los Angeles, uh, after, you know, spending most of my life in the Midwest and then in Colorado. So I sort of envy people who have like a, a really strong home base and, and have that strong sense of place. And I just like, you know, I guess I just like want you to speak to that. You know, like uh, knowing the names of things. I've heard you say that before. I've, I've read you uh, where you mentioned that, you know, having that kind of knowledge of a place. Almost nobody has that. Like they don't know what the trees are called right in their front yard. You know, like that strikes me as bizarre. 
you know, I think more of us have it than we know. And I'm struck, um, even in the United States, where this is a country that has been founded on mobility and leaving someplace else. Um, I mean, in our, in our background, most of us all carry an immigrant story, with the exception of, of Native people and First Nations. But I do think people have a strong sense of place, um, more than we think about. But it's true. I, I come from Utah, um, five, six generations, Mormon pioneers. Uh, my grandmother actually was born in Colonial Dublon in Mexico um, because they fled Utah as a result of polygamy, which became, you know, against the law. And they returned. And so I think in many ways, our stories are about the return. And whether it's returning to the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge, where I view long-legged birds as relatives, whether it's long-billed curlew or white-faced glossy ibis or a meadowlark, they do herald me home. Um, or the Red Rock Desert of Southern Utah, you know, canyon walls that rise upward like praying hands. Um, I know that I'm home in that erosional landscape. And what I can tell you, Brad, is you can't take yourself very seriously because the spaces are so huge, the weather is so big, and the horizon is always shifting. Um, it's a humbling. I think being part of the Western American landscape is humbling. Yeah, it does. I mean, I lived in Colorado for several years, and I miss that, you know, especially like, you know, you can get bogged down in Los Angeles, and every once in a while, I'll think to myself, you know, I haven't left the city in months, or even over right. even over a year, and then you get out, get out into nature, and you're in some really wide open space, which truthfully isn't that far away from here. I could get in the car and be in the desert, you know, relatively quickly, but um, you just forget, and then you get out there, and it's like, ah, you know, like... Oh my goodness, I forgot how nice this is to have some quiet and to have some, you know, some serious wide open space. It does give us perspective, but what about the ocean? That strikes me as as the longest horizon line imaginable. You know, it's there, but I don't live near it. And and this is uh -huh. the, this is the other thing. And like, you know, you start to kick yourself, but um, you know, I live uh, inland a little bit and the ocean is on a good day 20 25 minutes away. And yet mm -hmm. months can go by and I won't get out there. And, you know, it's like when people say like, oh, you know, you live in Utah. Do you go skiing? And it's like, well, not really. You know, maybe you do. Right. But it's like right. one of those things where when it's, in, when it's in your backyard, you don't take advantage of it nearly as much as maybe you should or maybe as much as people would think, you know. I mean, it was hysterical. Um, not long ago, my husband Brooke and I were at a wedding in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I was talking to a woman and she said that she had moved um, to Jackson from Pennsylvania and she thought it was very beautiful and she'd been there three years and she said, by the way, did you know there was a national park nearby? <laughs> and I said, yes, as a matter of fact, the Tetons, you know, Yellowstone, she had never set foot in the park. And, you know, I think it speaks to your point. By the same token, I know in Moab, we live just down, um, the Colorado River from Moab about an hour east. And when I taught in the school there, the sixth graders, 70% of those kids, and they're all local, had never been to Arches National Park, which literally was a stone's throw away from the elementary school. 
so it works both ways. Sometimes we're so local we don't even see where we are. Sometimes we move in and we inhabit a social landscape that we don't even take time to realize what the geography is. So, you know, I I think all of us, um, the world we live in right now, so much is virtual, so much is predicated on Internet and our work lives that we forget to take that pause. We forget to really look at the ground beneath our feet. And as a result, I I think we suffer. I think we um, we forget what it really means to be human. I, I agree. And I think that, you know, you and your work reflect the opposite of that, which is a credit to you. Like, you know, when I read you, um, whether it's your books or I read you in interviews or I hear you in interviews, like I'm always struck by... Uh, like this is a person who's really alive to the world or who is fighting hard to be alive to, you know, to the world in a very real way. And so like if somebody's listening and they're in like my camp <laughs> or in the camp of these kids, you know, who's, uh, you know, who have never seen arches, you know, what are concrete ways that you force yourself to be uh, really in contact with the place that you are? Like, do you have like, you know, at least once a month, I have to get out into nature and camp or, you know, I, I just, right. I, whenever I think of you, I envision you like, you know, you're out in the desert, like standing on some cliff top or something. <laughs> <laughs> Falling off. Yes. Um, or not, you not know, to me, it's just dailiness, you know, I mean, this morning I went to class um, with my students and, you know, we're in big weather. And so, you know, you're watching where you step because if not, there's an ice sheet below you. Um. I don't know. I always, you know, I hope that I have an encounter every day with other, meaning today I saw a black hat chickadee and just that little being, you know, those dark, deep eyes, just that, you know, and watch, watching how he or she was so puffed up um, outside on the trees. Um, you know, there were sycamores just outside where my classes, you know, that's a moment. That's a, a piece of, of weather, knowing that it's new moon, which is no moon, which is darkness. I love that. I love that we're in another cycle. I think it's just about being aware and paying attention, uh, regardless where we are. I saw a magpie today. You know, I love them. They are so raucous. Um, they remind me to be more bold. So it goes on. And you know, it doesn't feel like a big deal. It feels just like where we are in you, real time and, and place. Do you have any, like, you know, do you have any real disciplined practices? Like, are you a meditator or anything like that? Or is it something that you just try to employ more in your, like, I think you said dailiness, you know, in your everyday? Uh, I am not a meditator. Seriously. I, I can't sit that long. Um, that makes me feel better, by the way. I like that. <laughs> you know, and in fact, I will never be a Buddhist. I think the closest I've ever been is I had a pair of Dalai Lama earrings that I wore, um, which my friends were not amused by. No, I, you know, you just, I just love the world. I'm constantly amazed. You know, just, for example, today, I was talking with a student and um, he's writing an amazing piece of writing about what it means to live in the American West, what it means to be Western and, and gay. And it's a stunning story. And he wrote any 
um, preconceived notions of that. I mean, it's the Marlboro Man turned inside out. And he was talking about volcanoes. And suddenly, a friend of mine, Craig Arnold, who was a poet, he, he disappeared looking, searching, exploring volcanoes in Japan. Um, my student was writing about volcanoes and what it means to be gay on the edge of a volcano. And suddenly, Craig came into my mind, we found one of his poems, and there was a line that said, my work is unfinished, may I inhabit your body. You know, that, to me, that is wildness. That is being in our landscape, the inner wild, the outer world, outer wild. It's all the same thing. Yeah, and I love those synchronicities, you know, that's... And that's the word. Yeah, like that. Those, those, yeah, I mean, it's just like, but it's, it's not only is it like fun and it's a great moment, you know, but it also is really, right. it's really encouraging creatively when you have those, you know, if you're working on a book and suddenly you find one, it makes you feel like you're on the right path. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. And to me, that's every single day. And that's to me the instruction that being out on the land, in the desert, in the mountains, on the ocean, you know, on the beach gives us is that we're paying attention. We remember how small we are. We remember what we're a part of, um, literally while rivers run through our veins. And that's what, what I cannot imagine living without that kind of heightened state of, of being where it's interconnected, interrelated. Well, and what about, um, people because, or this is, this is the thought that occurs to me is that, you know, it can be, I think, a nice change of pace uh, or a nice reminder of how nice it is to be alive and how wonderful the world is to, to engage head on with nature, particularly because human beings can be so frustrating at times, you know, mm. and the human world that we live in is so fraught and there are so many, uh, you know, not so great things happening in that realm. It can be very frustrating, you know, especially if you're dealing at the level of politics or even interpersonally and even within the context of a family, you know, and then all of a sudden you're out mm-hmm. in the desert or you're staring at the ocean and it frees up a little space, you know? I think that's exactly right. There's a lot of noise in our world. There's a lot of noise in politics. Um, and I think when you do get into that, those places of stillness, um, you remember who you are and who you're not. And it is a, a settling of the soul. I also think it's where our our voices rise out of that kind of silence, that kind of stillness. Um, it's a great source of of inspiration. Have you ever had like a true, like very major detectable creative epiphany uh, out in nature, or have you, you know what I'm saying, or or some kind of spiritual epiphany? Have you ever really felt something super super powerful? I just- I just had one. My father is here. Could he just say hello? Yeah, sure. This is and we're talking about voice and what it means to live in the West. What would you say it means to live in the West? You go out open country to hang out in all the time. And, hello. And, hi, sir. How you doing? What's your name, sir? Good. Pardon? I said just your name, please. John Tempest. Hi, John. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, I've I've heard Terry describe you. I've read Terry describe you as the Marlboro Man without the cigarette. So you're you're uh, you seem like you must be like an authentic Western figure. Well, I probably traveling. You know, I, uh, I can manage as much as a pipeline contract. I 
my business was laying cross-country pipelines, you know, so I've walked those pipelines all my life, and then on my weekends, my hobby is hiking, so. Well, me too. You know, I've spent most of my life outdoors. Excellent. Well, uh, I envy that. I live in Los Angeles, so I get a little hiking in, but it's not quite the same. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thanks. Yeah, nice talking to you. Okay. Um, my father just asked me to fix his collar, so can you just hang on for a minute? Sure, of course. Yeah, go for it. Okay. We have something. Whoops. Oh, you. Okay, he wants it down. Just a minute, Brad. Okay. Okay, here, Dad. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay, and he's got his Patagonia on. You look great. And we're very excited. He's showing Jim Baylog's film, Chasing Ice, to his Mormon study groups. Oh. Um, he was once a deceiver or a denier, and now he's um, a believer. Thanks, Dad. I'll see you in a bit. Um, so that's, that's real world, right? Yeah. That was, that was a beautiful like little like domestic moment. I felt like, you know. I know. I mean, this is what we do, and it's what I live for. And um, my father and I, I can tell you, we certainly don't see eye-to-eye politically, um, but we do see eye-to-eye on the horizon. And whatever affection, love, passion I have for the natural world, you know, it's it's rooted right here in this in this house. So uh, before I go, I, I have a related question to that point, but like yeah. right, right when your dad came down or, or whatever, uh, you were saying that you just had an epiphany like recently. <laughs> was it, were you just saying you had an epiphany when your dad came into the room or were you about to tell exactly. me? Exactly. Oh, okay. Just the, the nature of life, interruption, family, domestic. Um, again, it's its own sense of wildness. And what I was saying is, I'm so thrilled tonight, you know, he wants to share this notion of climate change, receding glaciers, which he has spent so much time walking on, around, on, um, below. He wanted to share with his Mormon friends um, who don't believe in climate change that this is real and you can't deny the science. You know, what that says to me is that we can continue to evolve, and I love that. Well, and and I, I think that is an epiphany um, based on observation. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've had like similar... I'm, I'm happy to hear that, first of all, because I think the climate denying is um, problematic. <laughs> uh, but, but I think that if you, you know, th- there's a strong, like when I try to think of the politics of that and I try to think of how to build a consensus for it, it would seem that people in religious communities, um, you know, who are taught, I think, pretty much across the spectrum to have reverence for the natural world, for the God-created world, it seems like right. an it seems like an issue that they could get behind. You know, like we can we can find common ground here. You know, yeah, it's true, and I, it's again, it's all how we frame it, what our point of view is, and I think more and more people are realizing we are in a climate of change. I mean, this is a winter we've never had before. You know, these big superstorms. So again, it's that awareness. I can tell you in the desert. You know, you talk about an epiphanal moment. Um, not long ago, we could not see five feet in front of us, and this is in a landscape where you can see the curvature of the earth. What we were to learn is that this was a sandstorm that had originated in the Gobi Desert. I mean, talk about cyclic nature of things and how no place is isolated from another. You know, again, deeply humbling. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, uh, I mean, it makes me think of inner, like the interconnectedness. I mean, I like I, this is sort of like a, a tangent. You know, my mind just jumped. But 
when I think about that kind of stuff and then I think about, um, you know, climate as it relates to all of us and how, you know, no, no matter where you are in the world, it seems like you're getting touched by this. Though I should say Los Angeles seems a little bit spared compared to other parts of the, the country, you know, in other parts of the world. But it just brings up that tension. And I think it's like a central tension, certainly in like the American dialogue, but I think it's also right. um, a central tension period for people. And it's that, that, that collision between individualism and the collective and how we negotiate the ground between the two. I mean, it is just, for me, it's like a source of endless fascination and frustration, you know, like how to, how to be in the world relative to those two things and how to, um, manage one's conception of them. Do you know, like where, where do you fall on that? Like I get the sense that you have a very deep understanding of the interconnectedness of things. And that's where I sort of am. But then you have, you know, especially out in the West, there is like, you know, that in like the rugged individualist is also celebrated and, you know, right. there, there has to be a, um, a way to iron out the, the distance between the two. It's a beautiful way of putting it. And I don't know how one does that except for through the integrity of our relations, um, you know, and how we speak to one another. Well, and so it's a constant, you know, living here, I can tell you, it's a constant, um, it's a constant revision. What's the word? Um, improvisation. I can give you an example. Last Thursday, uh, one of our state senators, Jim DeBacchus, um, put forth a resolution for the protection of Canyonlands National Park and a call for an open, transparent conversation about the expansion of the Greater Canyonlands Initiative. That's all. All this bill was, Brad, was a call for transparent, open conversation about what it might mean to expand Canyonlands National Park. The next day, it went before the Senate in a, a hearing to see if this would you know, proceed in the Utah legislature. And I was asked to testify. So, you know, I, I had, what, two minutes. I wrote, you know, madly, you know, I tried to write down on paper the most articulate thing I could think of, the most compelling, what would be persuasive, right? Um, I read it to Brooke as we were driving down, and he goes, really, Terry, it's terrible. And I had all these scribbles, and I thought, I cannot believe, what am I going to do? You know, we're five minutes away, and the hearing is packed. There's a lot of passion around it. Um, here are these state senators. They're all good old boys. I would say most of them are over 60. Most of them are rural. Most of them Republicans. Most of them Mormon. Most of them cannot abide even the word wilderness, let alone setting aside more wilderness in federal hands. And Jim DeBacchus speaks, you know, they're kind of bored, but they're being dutiful and polite. Um, and then I start to speak. I'm extremely nervous. And I say, you know, my name is Terry Tempest Williams. My husband, Brooke, and I live in Grand County. And all of a sudden he goes, if you're the chairman, goes, your husband, Brooke Williams, I said, he is. And he goes, my God, that, you know, he didn't say God. He goes, you know, my gosh, um, that guy, I could tell you stories about him. We sold toilets, you know, and plumbing fixtures back in the day when Brooke was working for his family business in the plumbing industry. And he goes, where is that guy? 
Brooke raised his hand and said, Citizen Williams here, and he goes, he just went off. It's the most animated the senator has, I've ever witnessed. I realized, put aside your paper. You are talking from your heart. And what can you say to just convey a love for the land, which we all share, which I did. And did it make a difference? No, the vote, the vote was five to one against it. But there was a tone, and that tone was, we all live in the same place, and we all love this land, and how can we speak a language that opens the heart rather than closes it? And that was an epiphanal moment. Yeah, well, no, yeah. I mean, it's like, isn't it strange how, you know, sometimes when you're, when you're writing, obviously, like the composition, the slow composition, the painstaking revision bears wonderful fruit, and that's usually how it goes, but... Um, Sometimes, you know, it's the opposite and, you know, just a kind of first thought, best thought or speaking from the heart extemporaneously is the more effective method of communication. Like I go through that, like, you know, it can be something as like absurd as tweeting or it can be something like doing the monologue to the show. Sometimes right. it, it feels like when it comes fast, it, it's better. And if I sit there and labor over it and second guess myself 16 million times, it winds up not being quite as vital, you know? I, and I think it really comes down to our capacity to listen and our ability to be present with the moment at hand. And if we listen, not thinking, what am I going to say next? But if we really listen to what the other person is saying, and if we really are present in that moment, then, then I think something remarkable happens and we enter into that charismatic space, that, that authentic space where, where truth is revealed where we really are connecting as human beings. It's so nice when that happens. It's so nice. Isn't it? And it's like, and it's, it's, uh, it's frustrating to be like, do you ever have those moments? It's kind of like this weird, like uh, hybrid moment in between being alive in that space and having, uh, what did you call it? That charismatic, um, presence or whatever, where you're really hearing the charismatic somebody. space. Yeah, and right. it's like you're 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 almost there, but you're also in your own head, and you're aware that you're in your own head. Do you know what I'm saying? Right, right. <laughs> that happens to me sometimes. But um, have you seen that film, um, "The Artist Is Present," about Marina Abramovich? Yes, I did. Don't you love that? Yes, because I... she talks about that. You know, creating that charismatic space, and and certainly, you know, what she did sitting in that chair day after day month after month at the Museum of Modern Art and the lines. I mean, people just wanted to sit with her in her presence, being present, right? Yeah, no, it was like really, and like the, the weeping and like the spontaneous just emotion that would pour out of people. Like I know. It, it was so moving and it was, it was, um, confirmation. I mean, people are carrying so much and not that it was all sadness. Some of it might've been joy, but I just think a lot of people's pain sort of just oozed out of them when someone finally just looked at them for real. And what do you think that's about? I just what think, do you think that hunger is? Uh, I think you alluded to it earlier, you know, with regard to how much noise there is out there and how fragmented our lives can feel and how busy and how disconnected we can feel from where we are in terms of our physical space because we spend all of our days looking into computer screens or mm -hmm. how disconnected we can feel from people in our lives for any number of reasons. And so... I don't know. And it, it's just it's just odd and rare, I think, to sit quietly looking into somebody else's eyes and 
you know, even watching the movie of it, you know, I would get a little lump in my throat. You know, so, right. No, I do too. And I, you know, the other thing that I wonder about uh, is is about it's Maria, right? Maria Abramovich. Marina. Mm-hmm. Oh, Marina. That's right. Um, is I, I I wonder. I don't know if there's any way to quantify it or measure it, but think about and and I think that at the end of the movie they actually gave you the number, but. She sat with like a hundred thousand people or something. It was. It was. I think it was close to a million. It was like eight hundred thousand something. Yeah, it was an incredible number of people, and right. she did this like in you know. Oh, you're right. Sitting would be one thing, but I guess eight hundred thousand people came into the show. So I'm sure you're right about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I could be totally off, but I mean, it was a ton. That's the point. Yeah, I exactly. Just, I, I just wonder if like, like what kind of learning experience must that have been for her? You know what I'm saying? I wish there were some way for us to like, like if there were some sort of instrument that could measure a person's presence or something like right. that must have but been. Don't a... you think that she physically changed? I mean, you watched her face in the film. You know, it's it's as she became more and more present, it, it's almost as though her other self dis- disappeared or retreated and this transcendent look um, took over. I mean, I, I thought she physically changed, so I can only imagine what the emotional change or the, the spiritual change. I noticed that, um, in fact, I've got tickets, true story. Um, she has co-authored, co-written, um, co-created an opera. Did you know this? No, I didn't. Called, it's called The Life and Death of Marina Abramovich, and it's going to premiere in North America in Toronto. I bought two tickets. I have no idea who will go with me. My husband will not. But, um, and I'm sure my father will not. But it's an opera. And I thought, I wonder what her death was. Was it the death of her ego in that last performance piece? Um, it's the question you're asking, you know, how do you measure change? And I wonder if, if she will address this in this opera. She has to. I mean, you know, you well, it's like, pra- I mean, it's practice, right? Practice makes yeah. perfect. And, and the right. other thing too, is that, you know, you think about like, she's essentially in a meditative state, uh, but right. there's another person involved. And so I think that, gosh, uh, I feel like I'm just like venturing into ground that, uh, that where there is no ground, but it's like when you're sitting alone by yourself, there's nothing to measure yourself against. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's easy to sort of slip into some mental conversation. But when you've got a line of people and it's like this public thing, right. you know, maybe you can fake it. But it doesn't seem like she was. You know, It seemed like she was getting better at maybe not faking it. But- and it goes back to your question about the individual and the collective, um, the person and the community. And in a very powerful way, she was creating community out of the individual. And I think about that. You know, I remember years ago when I was doing some work in Spain, I went to the Kala Chakra ceremony that the Dalai Lama was conducting. And it was two weeks. You know, I'm not a Buddhist, but I was interested in ceremony, and I really wanted to just hear his teachings because I admire him as as a as a global leader. And... I did not understand the Tibetan teachings, but I loved what he had to say about compassion and patience and and presence. And at the end, every person, and there were, I don't know how many thousands of people there, you you, um, formed a line and then you just made a bow as you stood in front of him. What was so interesting to me, Brad, is that, you know, he looked 
at each person there and you felt like you had made this connection, but it wasn't personal. It was human. It went through me. And that was really powerful. And it it often reminds me of when I have an encounter in the wild. And when I talk about wild, it means in that place of presence. And, you know, just the other day, I was walking our dogs, and we came head to head, face to face, eye to eye with a moose. And it was this moment of contact and, you know, human, animal, woman, moose, dog. <laughs> it was both directly, you know, personal, but it wasn't. And, and and we just sort of deferred and I moved to the side and we walked backwards. And, and then when we were in a safe distance, you know, we quickly went our way as as she continued, you know, browsing on willows, but I don't know, it's just how do we be in the world? You know, how um, how shall we live? Yeah, I mean, I have, a, it's funny that you bring that up, like I have a moose story myself and I was camping, I hiked the Appalachian Trail or part of it after college and I was camping in Maine and mm-hmm. I it was the, it had just gotten dark and I was in my tent and I heard this sound of like, it sounded like um like wood on wood, you know, almost like a musical instrument. And it was, huh. it was because this big bull moose was coming through the woods and its antlers were just like knocking against tree trunks. Like there are a lot of thin trees in the woods. And he walked right up outside of my tent and I, oh, and I had my dog with me and I opened my tent and I turned my headlamp on and I'm just staring at this moose. And it's just like you say, like, like, and this has always been my, uh, my experience when I interact with wild animals in the wilderness is that it was just no big deal. And you know, right. it just sort of looked at me and I looked at it and then it right. kept walking and then I went back to bed. You know, like that was it. That's so interesting. I mean, I loved um, your conversation with Joshua Moore and you were talking at some point in that interview when you were saying, we don't know what we know. Do you remember? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but I, I love that idea that we don't know what we know. I mean, we know so much more than we think we do. And it's that embodied knowledge that, that I think is heightened when we are in those open spaces, when we are in that ecotone between um, the wild and the domestic, you know, moose, human um, or in some, you know, or, or in some like, yeah. you know, like big life experience. Like I think of like parenthood, like so yeah. much of, so much of our biology, you know, they just, you just kicks right. in, you just suddenly, you, you know, you know, you don't know that, you know, but suddenly you do. And it just goes, so, you know, I think I remember being terrified of all the little details of being a parent before my daughter was born. And it's like, I don't know how to change a diaper. And then she was born and suddenly I was doing it. You know, it's very strange. Right. No. It, I think that's right. And I would say, you know, as you're talking about in terms of parenting and birth, I would say the same thing with death. You know, in the moments where I have been able to be present with those that I've loved who have died, um, the most natural thing is touch and breathing. And it's so simple. It's so basic. And yet it's transformative. Um, Just the touching, the breathing together. And whether it's coming in or going out. Well, and I guess this is a good moment then to like talk about uh, the book when women were birds, because it was 
born out of the loss of your mother. I think that's fair to say. Um, and I just, maybe you can just talk a little bit about, you know, the, the birth of it, how it originated, and then we can go from there. It's like my throat just closed. Um, what can I say? My mother left me her journals, and all of her journals were blank. That's it. Um, <laughs> I mean, it is sort of a, I mean, it's, it's an unusual thing. I mean, to say the least. And, um, yeah. it still haunts me and I, I still don't know how to talk about it. You know, it, it, it was easier to write about it. And what I can tell you is, you know, my mother passed away 26 years ago and I'm in the house where she died. And, um, you know, I was, it was very much this time of year. It was in January, not February. Um, it was a big winter, and I remember I was lying on top of the bed with her, and I was rubbing her back. She was facing the window. It was bitter cold. And she said, Terry, I'm leaving you all my journals. And in truth, Brad, I didn't know my mother kept journals. And she said, but you have to promise me one thing, that you won't look at them until after I'm gone. And I gave her my word, and... We talked about other things. Um, a week later, she passed. It was a full moon. And a month later, I found myself in the family home here. Um, my father was gone. My brothers were gone. And I thought, now, now is the perfect time to look and to find my mother's journals. They were exactly where she said they would be. There were three shelves, um, beautiful cloth-bound journals, some floral, some denim, some linen, uh, some paisley. I opened the first one. It was empty. I opened the second one. It was empty. The third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. All of my mother's journals were blank. And was she, I mean, do you, do you have a sense that, like, maybe this was some sort of, I mean, was she a jokes, jokester? You know what I'm saying? Like, do you have any kind of, like, context from her life that made made it make any kind of sense or was it really that flat of a mystery? I was so shattered because my mother was a very private person and I thought finally I'll be able to know about her thoughts, her inner life, what she was thinking. Um, and I thought, is this a cruel joke? Um, I, I, and I couldn't even afford to think about it in that moment. I remember all I did was gather them up, take them into my car and I drove home, and I unceremoniously put them on the shelves, and through the years, I just wrote in all of them. You know, what was my mother saying? Was she saying, fill them, because I couldn't? Um, what I can tell you in terms of context, you know, women women are expected to do two things, keep a journal and have children. Okay, so wait, I got, this is something I wanted to ask you about, because it's, I mean, I, I understand having children, but they really are expected to keep a journal? I mean, is that something? Yeah, that you are the record keepers. You know, I have all of my grandmother's journals, my great-grandmother's journals, great-great-grandmother's journals through polygamy. And so, I mean, you could say, well, my mother kept her journals. Um, was it an act of defiance? Was it a cruelty? Because my mother knew that the one thing I did do religiously was keep a journal. I have hundreds of them, Brad. Hundreds, hundreds, thousands. It was the one thing she was always saying, Terry, why don't you pay attention instead of writing about it? Why don't you experience it? 
I don't know. I mean, it's all those things. And it really became this this kaleidoscope that I just keep turning. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I found another journal of hers. And the one thing I did do is in every time I wrote in one of her journals, I said, this is another one of Mother's journals. And and usually the first page, again, is that, that sadness, that 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 question of being so perplexed. Why? How? What? And I don't know. Um, was she a trickster? She was. Very much so. And I think my mother knew this would drive me mad. And and now as a woman, the age my mother was when she died, I cannot tell you she gave me such a gift, such a blessing. Um, in so many ways, you know, I thought I was going to write a book about voice. But I think in the end, When Women Were Birds is a book about silences. And yeah, and you mentioned earlier, like that's the that's what the voice comes out of. You you need that space, otherwise you're lost in the noise. You know, like like so many of us are. And another thing that you've said, uh, which I think is uh, really insightful, and I think is uh, applicable to a lot of writers, is that, and, and maybe they don't know it, but you said that your books are questions, or they're you know they're born out of questions. They're an attempt to answer a question. Do you have? <laughs> You have have you been able to boil down into one question what this uh, what you know when women were birds is is trying to answer or is it multiple questions? <laughs> That's such a, a good question. Um, I'll tell you the question that I still can't answer. Um, I I still don't know what voice is. You know, as writers, um, people say, "Oh, you have a strong voice," or you read something, they'll say, "What is the voice here?" I I still don't know what voice is. I still don't know how to describe it, except for that it's you know it is that charismatic space. It is that authentic um, place out of which truth arises. And how would you describe voice? How would you define voice? You know, I was just thinking about this, and I just talked to uh, Joyce Johnson, who wrote a Kerouac biography, and I, you know, that book has been on my mind, and he's been on my mind because the book is called "The Voice Is All." So, I mean, it was obvious, huh. the, the whole book is essentially about his pursuit of his own writerly voice. And you think about the beats, and you think about, you know, the, the, the whole first thought, best thought, and the spontaneous prose. And uh, right. we, we talked earlier about how sometimes, you know, it, when writing and communication feels most vital. Uh, it feels unencumbered by second guessing and like in the moment, like self editing. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I think that's part of the reason why I like to do this show is because uh, it feels more natural to me. And sometimes the writing can be really frustrating for me. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, like this is me speaking. And, and I think when the writing, if I can allow myself to just write as I might speak, that to me is a voice. So if you write in a way that you might, speak when you're speaking at your best, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Right. It's, it's like that. It's, I a, do. it's a conversation. I mean, I do think it's a conversation and I think it is about sound and clarity and simplicity. All of those, those things. You know, I remember when I worked at the museum of natural history, um, I would stay late and write in my office because I was working full time and that's the only time I could, you know, um, find that, that alone time. And no one was ever there, and so I would just leave my door open, and, and I would write. And I always write out loud, so I can hear the words and speak the words, as you're suggesting. 
And then one day, my, um, I want to say office mate, you know, the biologist, Eric Reichert, who uh, had his office next to mine said, you must have the most amazing friend who listens to you every night and never says a word. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? Because, because I always hear you talking and I never hear them say anything. And I didn't realize that all those nights he was listening to me, you know, the poor man. Um, but I did think the spoken word is instructive in terms of the written word. Yeah. I mean, it is for me anyway. It's funny that you say, cause I do the same thing. And like, you know, my wife teases me because I'll be sitting in my office and I'll start laughing at my own jokes and you know, it just gets really bad. So I'm not, and when you get into that zone, you don't, you know, you obviously, especially weren't thinking that anyone was around listening and you know, I live, yeah. I'm, I'm working at home. So, you know, it's, it's feasible that she could be hearing me through the door, but I'm not thinking about that when I'm doing it and I'm comfortable enough at home to not care. So you know, it's it's got to be an odd experience to listen to a writer reading their own stuff aloud and then like cracking up at their own jokes. <laughs> you know? I'm sure, really. <laughs> you know, and I, I mean, I think about the voice voices that are suppressed. I think about um, our own suppression of our voice, our own censorship. Um, you know, and, and then it goes back to silence. That um, yes, our voices are born out of that silence, that creative silence. But what does it mean to be silenced and who benefits? So, you know, these are all questions that I still carry with me. Um, writing is an exploration of, of those questions. I'm not sure that we ever answer them, but I love um, having the time and the space in making a book that, that you can survey those questions, that you can live the questions, as, as Rilke says, and that out of, out of that inquiry, um, you hope some kind of wisdom arises or some kinds of stories emerge that, that circle around the questions. Well, that's, I mean, you know, that's the thing too, is that I think sometimes for writers, uh, you know, there's that pressure to have the answer, you know, you'll right. sit down, especially I think early on, you know, you read these great books by your heroes and uh, right. it feels like everything's there and they, they, they had it. And, you know, it can be daunting because then you sit down and you kind of have this uh, self-expectation that you've put upon yourself that, like, I've got to have the answers. I've got to say it all. And uh, one of the most useful things, you know, that I realized or that I read from somebody or from multiple people is that it's more important to have the right question than it is to have the I, right answer. I totally believe that. And I often think that writing is a process of, of creating spirals that you just keep circling out, circling out, or circling back in. I love that. And and certainly in the natural world, you see spirals everywhere, whether it's a shell, whether it's a, a storm, um, you know, a cowlick on a deer uh, that you get to see up close. Um, to me, that's the process of writing that I love the most, is the spiraling out, the spiraling in, um, the expansion, the contraction. Well, so, so let me ask you this, you know, this is a nice moment to ask you about how you actually work and reading you. It, fe it feels like you are like, I, I always call, I, I kind of divide writers into two camps. There's like the, the kind of type a, uh, outlining very structured writers. And I should mention here that I don't think either one is better than the other. It's just different strokes or different folks or whatever. But, 
Um, there's also the intuitive writer who sort of is, you know, it's like the finger painting in the dark thing where you kind of feel your way through. And that you strike me as that kind of writer. You know, you're following your instincts and you're finding structure and form uh, through a process of trial and error. Am I on the right track or is it totally different? <laughs> no, absolutely. That's it. So how do you mean, are you an everyday writer? Like talk a little bit about how you work so that people can get a sense of it. You know, I'm in love with paradox, that kind of creative tension. I never know where I'm going. Um, I often feel like I'm a waterfall that's being told to fit into a pipe. Um, structure is, is essential for me, but I usually don't find it till the end, which is very frustrating. Um, and it's usually, you know, I rewrite, rewrite, rewrite hundreds of drafts in revision and I don't think I really find my way until the, the second to last draft, the last draft. Um, so yes, it's always a process of discovery. My journals are really important to me in terms of sketchbooks. Do I write every day? No. On the other hand, that hinges on a lie because I do keep a journal every day. And, you know, it's a funny thing. I was just thinking about that. I don't consider writing in my journal writing. And why is that? Is it because it's akin to housework? Because it's um, private? I don't know. But I realized that maybe I do write every day. I just don't um, place a value on it. It's not like I'm sitting down to write an essay or an op-ed piece or a political column. Um, so in that sense, I would say I'm a binge writer. But when I am on the page, I'm like everyone, you know, I lose track of time and space and into a trance. And when I'm in deep original work, um, you know, I set a pretty large swath of time where I'm not interrupted um, three weeks at a time. And, and I think that happened because I, when I worked at the museum full time, I could get three weeks off. And so I learned how to create very intensely quickly in that amount of time. So it's funny the patterns that, that you develop. But so, of course, life isn't that um, clear cut. It's sort of nice though, when like external forces create spaces for you. And then like it's like a structure created for you. And then you have to fit yourself into it. It's, it's actually kind, right. of, it's kind of nice. I think like it's... It's almost like when you have all the time in the world, it's worse than when you only have two hours a day. You know, it can be, right. it can be right. that way. But um, so what you're saying is that, you know, when you have this time to open up or when you fall into a cycle where you know um, that you're going to be really writing intensively, does a draft come out of you quickly? Are you able to get in a three-week period like a, you know, a, a rough draft of a full project or is it something that... No, there's no rules, rhyme. I'm so undisciplined. I never know how it's going to happen. You know, it's that vitality of the struggle that that um, Gertrude Stein talks about. And the older I get, I'm 57 now, the less I know. And the more, um, what, mysterious the creative writing process is. But I do know we have to show up. I do know that once I'm in that chair, things happen. And it's why I love deadlines. It's why I love um, short pieces. It's why I asked Matt Rothschild if I could write a column for the Progressive because I wanted that kind of structure. Because otherwise, 
I so love the world. I will just go out and watch birds for the rest of my life. Or <laughs> when I'm teaching, I'm not writing. And, you know, I don't, my identity is not as a writer. You know, what I love is, um, I love teaching. I love working with students. I love being out. You know, I'm engaged with my family. It's a, it's a real life. And writing feels, um, and maybe it's how I grew up in Mormon culture, you know, to be a writer was, was to be nothing. And especially a woman writer where, you know, your voice was, in the generation I grew up in, was not valued. And certainly not if you were asking questions, especially questions um, that butted up against authority, particularly a patriarchy. So I'm always a bit tenuous when I write. I'm always nervous when I speak because on some level I'm breaking set with the convention I was raised in. Well, you know, it's funny to hear you say that, and I'm glad that you brought it up because I wanted to ask you about this. Um, you know, it feels relatable to my own experience. I was raised Catholic. Uh, I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore, though my family is, and um, I've always worked against that. It's like a central tension in my life, and I think it's part of the reason why I gravitated towards writing was to try to work that out and to try to have my own voice on things as opposed to, you know, just kind of folding myself into what was handed to me and which never really agreed with me. You know what I'm saying? I always, I found my mind at odds with it. Like it sounds like you're sort of similar, like your formation was similar or is, is that a You and I share that. You and I share that. And it is a tension and it's that paradox. You know, I feel like I'm this radical spirit in a conservative religion. Um, but I'm, the same token, you know, when you look at Joseph Smith, he was, you know, completely a radical. Um, but it just depends on, you know, who was having vision. So, it, again, nothing is as it appears. But yes, you and I share that same tension of writing against something, writing for something to figure out what it is you think about. It goes back to your initial question, Brad, of, you know, how does the individual relate to community? What's what's private, what's personal, what's individual, what's collective. And that um, dialectic, that conversation that keeps occurring, again, in the ecological world, that is the ecotone. And that is where it is most alive, um, between shadow and light, between wetland and woods, um, between surf and sand. That's where I feel most at home. As it. a writer, as a human being. That's where it can, yeah. It's it's that's the thing that makes it makes more sense out there. <laughs> it's so much more complicated mm -hmm. in the human world. It seems like, right? Um, so how do you? I mean, you mentioned you know your father was on the on the call for a moment, and and uh, you know you guys obviously uh, it sounds like have a, a a good relationship, and and you know like I have a good relationship with my parents, even though we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things, including like I guess the most fundamental questions. Um, you know, I find myself at turns. Um, like really angry. I can be really angry at, at the Catholic church and just be like, do away with it. You know, like what is this thing? You know? And then there's parts of me and I can be, I mean, don't even get me started on the whole pedophile thing. And I mean, I want to ask you today, the, the Pope resigned. What did, what were your thoughts on that? I see, this is the thing. I think the Pope is complicit in this. I know he is. The records are there yeah. and I think it's, yeah. crim it's criminal behavior and it drives me up the wall that people won't say that, you know, like you need Do you to think he resigned because of that. I think he resigned because he wants to pick his successor. I think that's the, I think that's an astute take on it. And I, I still need to read more and process more, but like, 
you know, he wants to have a strong amount of influence on who succeeds him because who succeeds him will have a lot to say about how he is remembered. And wow. I think that there also could be a lot coming down the pike um, in terms of more revelations about abuse and, uh, you know, his involvement and John Paul II's involvement. And, you know, I, I understand how extraordinarily painful that can be for somebody who is a practicing Catholic and who is deeply invested in the church and really feels a strong part of their identity um, with it. But I find it cowardly to not address it head on and with clarity, right. or at least to make that attempt because these are kids who are, you know, like it's the, it's right. the most, it's the most obnoxious and awful crime. And to be silent about that to me is intolerable. So, you know, I have strong feelings about it, but. Yeah. And you were asking about anger. Yeah. And I think my great struggle as a writer has been, how do I take my anger as a woman within a, a patriarchal church and turn it into sacred rage so that my voice can be heard um, and not dismissed. And and that to me is, is the key. You know, growing up, I knew it made no sense that African Americans could not hold the priesthood. It made no sense to me that women could not have the same power that men have. Um, and how do you how do you write about that? How do you confront that? How do you accommodate that? Um, and at what cost? And, you know, I feel the same way about environmental issues. You know, what, I can't even talk about it, you know, in terms of BP and the oil spill. The people that I interviewed when I wrote a piece called The Ghost Between Us for Orion Magazine, I'm still in touch with the people I interviewed. Um, Becky DeWay, who ran a convenience store, who took me fishing for redfish one full moon, she now had to sell her business um, because there were two red uh, shrimp. Um, because she got so sick now, she can barely walk because she is, for the rest of her life, will be on chemotherapy. Why? Because they were sitting on their porches in the Cajun communities being sprayed with dispersants by the United States government. None of that comes out. BP goes off scot-free, pay, what, a few million dollars, even a few billion dollars. You know, again, how do we, how do we deal with that? And for me, I write. My writing, when I write, I calm down. And my writing is way ahead of, of me as a, as a person. You know, my writing is much calmer, much more seasoned and reasoned than, than who I am in the world. And you have to be, but at the same time, you know, like you have, it, it allows you to concentrate your thought and I get that. And it allows you to let your anger cool. You know what I'm saying? It's hard to stay super angry while writing. I think. Well, I think nobody's interested in a polemic. Polemics are not persuasive. And I think when we tell a story, a different part of our body is engaged. You know, when we tell a story, we literally bypass rhetoric and, and the story pierces our hearts. It, it becomes the conscience of a community. It keeps things known. It's the umbilical cord between the past, present, and future. And we calm down. I mean, when I worked with the Navajo um, children teaching on the res, you know, and we would be invited into the hogans where the elders would tell stories. Um, you could always tell, and I didn't speak Navajo, but I always knew when the elder was telling the story because his voice would deepen. His words would stretch out, and the children would fall asleep. And the highest compliment you could pay 
one of the elders was to fall asleep because it meant that through the story you were transported to another world. That's what I'm most interested in as a writer. How do we create a different kind of world on the page? How do we one put, that sustains us? How do we put people to sleep? That's really you know. You know? <laughs> but that's a nice and, thought. That's a nice way of putting it, like sending people off into kind of dreamland. And I don't mean that in the sense of um, falling asleep, as so many of us are in the in the culture and cultures. But I'm saying. How do we become transported to a different way of being? It goes back to that question, how shall we live? And how do we remember what it means to be human and to go into those deeper and higher spaces that transcend ordinary time? That is the role, I think, of the storyteller. And what happens when you tell your story and it and it happens to be at odds with members of uh, your family, for example, or members of your community and you deal with uh, blowback. You know, I mean, I guess it happens to any writer, but especially if you're someone who feels like a radical, as you, I think you, you said yourself in your own community, you know, you're sort of, you're at odds with it to a degree. You're reacting against it. You're trying to find your own voice uh, amidst all of that. You have to have had experiences where people have disagreed with you strongly even. like All the time. So and how, how do you process that? You know, the culture's changing within Mormon culture. Um, there was the most recent example. There was a, a huge um, gay pride parade um, hosted by members of the Mormon Church, um, saying that the church's policy needs to change because this is about brothers and sisters, and and if the ch- the primary value of the Mormon Church is family, then why are you splitting up families? And that's powerful, you know. So I mean, in a sense, as writers, we're writing from the future. And it's not easy. And you talk about blowback. The most serious blowback is is within my own family. And that's the hardest thing. And, you know, by what authority do we tell our stories? The authority of our own experience. And, um, and to own that and to stand by that. But it's not without its consequences. And as a writer, I've made a decision that when I write about my family, which has been often, um, that my family can read it first. And that they have, um, you know, they we have a conversation. Um, I've changed, I've changed things out of, respect, out of respect for my family, and I've also kept things out of the integrity of my own voice. So that relationship, they're strained and stretched, and and um, but I'm, I think I can say honestly, Brad, that I haven't lost any of my relationships with my family. I mean. It's it's been years at times that I've had to wait, or that forgiveness has occurred, or a reconciliation. But at this moment, um, you know, my relationships are intact, and and that matters to me as a writer. Sure. It matters to me as a person. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's hard, you know. It's and it's interesting um, to hear you talk about it because I, you know I think I I definitely come up against that in my own work. I think a lot of writers do, and um, it's funny that. I, I know to have blowback from somebody on like an Amazon review or from a print review in some publication is one thing, but when it comes within your own family, like it's, it's a lot trickier to navigate it always, the closer people are to you, the trickier it is. it seems like, you know, even though you know them Absolutely. so well, you, it, it would it would seem like it would be easier, but it's not. 
No, I think, I mean, there's the outside world, and believe me, I've had as many bad reviews as anyone. Um, and I've also, you know, been graced with some good ones, but but on some level it's peripheral, where, whereas within our families and within our community, it's core. And, and that's where I choose to live. And so, you know, before I'm going to let you go here in a moment, but I guess like a, a good way to end would be to ask you about... Uh, your view, your vision of the future, your your mood with respect to it, um, particularly with regard to the environment, which is so central to your life and your work. Um, you know, it can be pretty depressing to look around at uh, climate change, for example, the politics surrounding it, the pollution. The, the you know, you go out and you write these stories about the BP oil spill. Like it can be, it's such heavy business. Um, are you hopeful? Do you have uh, a, you know, any part of you that is fatalistic or cynical? Um, you know, when you look to the future, do you think, well, we're probably doomed, but let's just have fun now? Or do you think like we can really flourish in the future? Like, what's your vision? <laughs> you know, what comes into my mind is that beautiful haiku by Issa: insects on a bow, floating down river, still singing. Maybe we should just end there <laughs> and I'll let people ponder that. Um, I think that means good things. You just... you know, I, I think that's a good place to end. You know, I think we're in an, an incredible time of transition. Um, the ground beneath our feet is cracking. Um, I don't know where we're going to go. But what I can tell you is that every single day I see joy and I see beauty and the challenge becomes how do we live in love with a broken heart in this beautiful, broken world? And um, I think stories are our lifeline and our capacity to listen and to be present, even in the midst of horrific uh, destruction, even in the midst of extraordinary tendernesses. Well... I can't tell you how much fun this has been talking to you and how enlightening and uh, I congratulate you on the book and I thank you for spending the time. Brad, I have loved this. I just, you know, it feels like family and um, I thank you. Okay, you guys, that's it for now. That is Terry Tempest Williams. Pretty great, huh? Her book is called When Women Were Birds, 54 Variations on Voice. It is due out in paperback from Picador on February 26th, 2013. You can find her online at coyoteclan.com, coyoteclan.com, and you can find her on the Facebook. She's also on the Twitter, where her handle is at Tempest Williams. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, and hey, don't forget to get the app, the official Other People app. It is free. It is available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It is, uh, for my money, the best and most elegant way to keep up with this show. Uh, you can also access the full archives via the app. Uh, you can sign up for the uh, premium model if you so desire. So please do that uh, if that sounds good. You can also subscribe to this program free of charge at iTunes or at Stitcher. Or, of course, you can simply listen to it online at otherpeoplepod.com. So, uh, big week. big A lot of stuff happening. Minimum wage, operating, Terminator Vision, uh, freshly squeezed juice. Uh, there's a lot, a lot going on, a lot of confusion. It makes me aware of my diet, not only when it comes to uh, food, 
and juice, but also when it comes to, you know, the media, people, places, you got to be aware of this stuff. You have to filter, uh, you have to be conscious, you have to stay awake. And, uh, you know, I should also add like for, for a little bit of revision regarding the minimum wage issue, for example, I know it's complicated. I know that not everybody who pays employees minimum wage is like some fat cat banker or, you know, some coal industry executive. And, uh, you know, and, and also now that I'm thinking about it, I also sort of wonder why the guy at the juice shop uh, didn't say something to this woman who was asking uh, or who needed money. You know, why didn't he call her out if she's in here, you know, if she's in the place three times a week doing this, uh, scamming people, uh, why didn't he just say something to her? So, you know, there are questions and there are complexities and, uh, you know, you can't trust your perceptions too much. I think that's my point. Please remember that Matthew Arnold died of a heart attack while running for a streetcar and that John Milton died of gout. Uh, I think that's it for now. I'll be back on Wednesday with another episode, another conversation, another person who tries to put the words in the right order. Thank you for listening, you guys. I appreciate it. Have fun out there. Uh, don't operate. That's my suggestion. Don't operate in the, uh, you know, in the traditional sense. Don't operate in the uh, weird, creepy, reptilian sense. Let's all just stop operating. Let's operate by not operating. Let's just walk into rooms and eat hors d'oeuvres and talk to the person standing next to you, uh, whoever it happens to be, and be nice to them. That's it. Let's try that. Let's not quantify people. Let's not have Terminator vision. You know, just eat your hors d'oeuvres and have a cocktail and uh, try to have a laugh and talk about how hard it is to spell the word hors d'oeuvres. (laughs) 